Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, gang, we want to talk through the issues regarding Christ. Everyone has to make a decision about Christ and who he is before we ever respond to what he says. So we want to spend some time tonight thinking through that. Before we do, we want to ask God to govern our time and empower our thinking and our learning and my teaching. So let's pray for that right now. God, we are thankful for the clarity of your word. I pray that even in this Thursday night study, we've been able to think clearly about the authority of your word. The last few weeks that we've dealt with your existence and the logical cogent nature of what it means that you are there and that you've provided a clear revelation in writing and that you are superseding natural law and can intervene from time to time as you have. You could intervene every day if you wanted to, but we're grateful that we can think through those things and allow us then to look at the main character of scripture, which is you yourself stepping into time and space and Christ having you come and live in our place and die in our place to meet our ultimate need. And God, we know in our evangelism, that's what we want to impress upon those around us. We want to, knowing the fear of God, we want to persuade men and women to respond to this message. And to do that, we need to start by accurately presenting the truth about what your word says regarding Jesus, the Messiah. So I pray tonight would be a helpful night to think through that, how we talk about who your son is, how we talk about what the word has to say, how we clarify and work through all the opposing thoughts and opinions regarding Jesus, and that we could come to be real effective apologists. And in that regard, I mean the answering of charges against us, not just our belief system regarding the universe or who you are or even who we are, but most importantly, who your son is, that we'd get that right. We'd be good at correcting the errors and the opponents that will raise their arguments up against the truth of Christ. And I pray tonight would be helpful. Thank you, God, for your word as we're going to quote so much of it tonight. I pray it would just embed itself in our thinking as we go back to these notes later, which I pray we will, that we'll be able to just enrich our evangelism and strengthen our courage and confidence in the truth of your word. Thanks for this crew that meets together every week that is faithful to encourage me just by being here and actively listening. And I pray that tonight they would see the the worth and the value of our time together. So do that, God, and be honored through it all, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As simple as it sounds, we want to consider, number one, some of our options about Christ. But even before we get to that, I want you to think of all of the opposing views of Christ. Everyone has to deal with Christ, the pivotal historical figure. Of course, Islam would say he's a prophet. He couldn't be the son of God. Judaism says he's a false messiah, maybe a martyr for a cause in Judaism and the Old Testament truth, but not the messiah. Hinduism says he's a good teacher, one of many sons of God. The Hare Krishna say Jesus was an enlightened vegetarian guru. Baha'i would say he's one of many God manifestations. The JWs say he was Michael, the archangel. 
certainly a messenger of God and the top one, but not God himself. Mormons say, well, he's God. He's one of many gods. Certainly we can be a God as well. Christian science says Jesus was not Christ, but he carried a Christ idea. Scientology, of course, the crazy thing that that is, as we've dealt with here on Thursday nights, they believe he's a Thetan and not the creator, the fictitious imaginations of L. Ron Hubbard. Well, the Bible, for all the noise in the world, wants us to think clearly about who Christ is. Matthew sixteen thirteen. Jesus himself turned to his disciples and he said, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. These, of course, reincarnations of these figures and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. You've, you've come back some past historical figure. Now you're here as a mighty prophet of God. But he said, but who do you say that I am? And I think That is in our evangelism what we need to get around to before we ever get to responding to the message of repentance and faith or even our self-assessment about our own sin. We want to present people with that question. It's a pressing question and everyone needs to consider it. What do we do with Christ? What are we to make of Jesus? Not a bad opening salvo in our discussions and debates about Christianity and the gospel. Who do you think Jesus was? Lots of ways to introduce the topic of the gospel, but that's not a bad way. Remember this, as I just prayed, we've tried to establish, and if this is so established in your mind, we can start with these logical foundations that God exists, that there is a supreme, unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, the ultimate uncreated one who sits outside of his creation, a transcendent God, an immutable God, an impassable God, a a God who is sovereign over all of his creation and that he actually exists. And then we dealt with the Bible in two steps, that our Bible that we have, our English translations, is what was written, at least one step removed, a translation of what was actually written. And we looked at the history of the transmission of the text, and we saw that to be a very very important foundational step to think about who Christ is. We've got to make sure if we're going to quote Scripture, as we will, by the way, just endlessly tonight. So much scripture, it's going to look like if you're taking notes at the end of this, that you've just got a whole couple of pages of references, and that's fine. We need that, but it needs to be established on the fact that we've tried to show that the passages that I'm quoting were actually what these prophets and apostles wrote. And then we made very clear two weeks ago that we want to see the fingerprints of God on the text of Scripture, that it has authority because God himself has spoken. These are not men's best thoughts about God, but these are God's thoughts on paper, that he's revealed himself in propositional statements, and they have been um, transmitted down to us through time accurately. That was the second step. And then last week we said, well, God can intervene in his creation. And we looked at several reasons why we think that is philosophically true, or at least why I think it's philosophically true, why it's scientifically possible, why it's something that we can historically look at the record of and with the witnesses that we'll see, particularly as it relates to the resurrection among others and predictive prophecy, we can see that God has actually entered into his creation, at least so far we've discussed in terms of the suspension of natural law, setting aside the normal course of things to prove he is who he says he is. So that's critical. I mean, that's why we went in the order that we did to think about what apologetics is. If there, is there a God? What about this book that we carry around and quote authoritatively? Is it even an accurate picture of what was written? And is it the word of God? And then can this God have anything to do with us? And, and, 
Can he break into time and space? And has he? Of course, when we talk about Christ, we need to start there. The Bible records, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is looking at what the Bible has to say about, number one, the need for a Messiah, number two, the fulfilling of Messianic prophecies in Christ, and then proofs that Jesus is God. And that's the rest of our outline for tonight. But that's a big thing. Matter of fact, if you just learn to say those things to people, that we have a record of God's revelation to men, most people will at least buy that in some way, even the miraculous signature of it. They'll say, yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe he's revealed himself. I believe the Bible's a special book from God. I believe that miracles can happen and did happen in the Bible. We've seen that's the majority view among Americans today. That's not a bad place to start, though we don't want to accept those just without substantiating them or trying to at least think through clearly why it makes sense. But then we want to say, okay, there was a need in the Bible for God to break into space and time and something a concept called the Messiah. We'll look at that. We believe that Jesus was that Messiah. He fulfilled those biblical prophecies and that he spent time clearly announcing through his deeds and actions and words that he is God in human form, which leaves us with this triune God, which we'll talk about uh, later as we get through into other weeks. Now, people thinking about God, we've got plenty of people that have claimed to be God and that do even in the contemporary era and nothing big about claiming to be God. Anyone can and many have said that they are God. And we could spend time looking at some of the more recent iterations of those claiming to be God, claiming to be, many of them claiming to be Jesus, God incarnate. But our reasonable choices is, and I'm just following clearly what Lewis, I think, just logically, C.S. Lewis just logically presented as options. And of course, there's nothing genius about that other than to say that if you think about it long enough, you start to recognize someone claiming to be God, you've got to put them in, you know, one of several categories. Like I said, you can look at these folks and say, well, all I have to do is understand where they're coming from and take a look at their lives and we can start to come to reasonable conclusions about who they are. Well, the first option is that he was delusional. Now, few are willing to go there, but we need to press the case. Listen, if the Bible is an accurate record of what Jesus said and what he taught and what happened, we got to look at what he says. And if he claims to be this all supreme being that everyone should follow his teachings and be devoted to him because he's coming back into space and time a second time, if you want to dismiss that, you can do that. But one of the ways you'll dismiss it is to saying he's crazy. Like most of the people that I've met, they claim to be God. And I've met a good handful of them. I can think of several faces right now that I've interacted with. Be a pastor in Southern California. You'll have plenty of people that'll claim to be God. I don't know why I said that, but it's, I've got stories for you. We ever sit around and talk. Few are willing to go here though about Jesus. They will say, and they will admit, and we should get them to admit that his teaching was cogent. We still quote it. It's things that he said are etched on buildings and granite. His teachings are described with phrases like the golden rule. These are the kinds of things that people would say, yeah, Jesus was not delusional. His wisdom, in fact, was remarkable, most people will say. Why do all the religions have to deal with Christ and put him in some category above us, which most of them will, and if not above us categorically, at least something that we can all attain to, but it's still higher and we need to, to work our way there. In other words, he is, he's not delusional. He's not someone that we dismiss as crazy. We see his wisdom as remarkable. Now, again, let's just start thinking through what the scripture says about Christ. And I'll give you several references here, just a few, I guess, as it relates to this one. But Luke chapter 20, verses 39 and 40, just think through how he related to the crowds. The scribes, of course, were professional scholars. 
And some of the scribes answered the teacher after Jesus answered their questions and their disputes that he entered into. You have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They tried to entrap him constantly in the pages of the Gospels. And Jesus always comes through these with a kind of response like this. That they say, well, he's definitely got his intellectual act together. Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This is when he was 12 years old. The only account that we have of him between his infancy and his adult ministry. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So from the earliest of ages, at least depicted historically in the scriptures, he's presented as someone who they're amazed at his insight and his understanding. Now he's able to answer people as it relates to biblical questions or theological knots, the knotty logical conundrums he was able to answer. Matthew twenty two thirty four and 35, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, now he gone from the scribes, professional scribes, to the Pharisees, this very important group of leaders that set up all kinds of traditions and, and legal laws for Israel, and the Sadducees, who were kind of the regal, aristocratic leaders of Israel. These were high-ranking people. Well, when the Pharisees heard that he had kind of put the Sadducees to shame, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they were constantly going at him to try and see if they could try and subdue his logic and his intelligence. So the scripture is peppered with, and we could go on with statements about how Jesus was known to be intellectually sound. He was not delusional. Oh, I got one more. And no one dared to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So we have a lot of that in Scripture. Oh, I got more. They could not reply to these things. Luke 14, 6. All right. Jesus was deceptive. If you know the triad of answers in Lewis, you've got, you know, a, a lunatic, a liar lunatic or Lord. And I, I'm just making these my own and have through the years. He's either delusional or he's deceptive. Well, if you want to accuse him of this either. Right? They'll want to blame it on the Bible, perhaps, because they can think about people that have somehow messed up the Bible. Hopefully we can logically defend the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness and protection of the transmission of the Bible. So now what? Now you're going to say Jesus was lying about his status, that he said he was something he wasn't, whether that be the Messiah or God, if you want to accuse him of that. But you need to press them in that regard. Certainly had a truthful reputation, and we can go throughout the Bible and see. The disciples sent, they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, another group of people. They were very influential in the first century, obviously had warmed up to Herod's family and that dynasty. And they said, teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. I mean, that's quite a mouthful, and a resume builder, if you're trying to impress people with your commitment to truth, that you don't care. You're not just saying whatever people want to hear. I mean, he certainly had a reputation of being truthful. Mark seven thirty-seven, and when they were and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He's not a liar. He's not a cheat. He doesn't say things that are not truthful. He's not deceptive. John 14, 6, he even presents himself that way, which, by the way, will set you up for criticism. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You start calling yourself the truth, the embodiment of truth, you're going to have people that want to entrap you. And certainly the Herodians wanted to trap him, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, and we could go on, the Sanhedrin, they all wanted to trap Christ. And you start saying things like, I'm the truth, and we're going to try and find him somehow lying. And so he opened himself up to a lot of scrutiny that didn't yield any reasonable accusation of his deception. John eighteen thirty seven. Pilate said, are you a king? 
Jesus answered, saying that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth, truth, truth. I'm about truth. I present the truth. I am the truth. People said, will you speak the truth? We know you speak the truth. So Jesus, in every way, had presented himself as truthful. I don't think you can, from the documents, if we can establish those to be reliable, come up with a picture in Scripture to dismiss what he says because he's deceptive or because he's delusional. So you're left with, and I don't know what else you could say, you either attack the source, you attack the history, or you try and slot him into being deceptive or delusional, or you're stuck with him being divine, which has big implications. And the biggest one, and we won't get into this because this starts to get pastoral, we can do this on a Sunday morning, but you need to listen to him and do what he says, right? Think about it. Hebrews 1, 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed appointed heir of all things. Everything belongs to him through whom he created the world. So here is Christ having all authority and he is the spokesperson of God. And if he was that person, as it goes on to say, the exact representation and imprint of God's divine nature, if that's who he is, then we're stuck opening the Bible and doing what it says. And in the modern era, in my evangelism, how often I, I just say, listen, this is what Jesus taught. If, you, if you're not crazy, he's not delusional, then you've got to respond to what he says. God is speaking to you by the words and teaching of Christ. And we can't wiggle our way out of it. Well, not that the logic was unique to C.S. Lewis in doing that. I at least should give you the original quote. And since he was a great author, though his theology wasn't always that tight, he certainly knew how to write. And don't ask me about that right now. But he put it this way initially in that liar, lunatic, Lord trio of options. He said, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. There's the, the options. He's delusional, he's deceptive, or he's divine. But let us not come, and I love this sentence here, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher, right? He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As I've said, the more extreme the claim, the more polarized the options in terms of your response. The more extreme the claim, the more polarized the options are for your response. And you can't be neutral about Christ. And that's where most of your friends and neighbors want to go. What am I going to do with Jesus? Well, he's a good teacher. I think he had some good things to say. Well, he had more than good things to say, as we're going to see for the rest of our time. He claimed to be completely in charge of all things and that you should do whatever he says. So you can't stick him in this middle ground of being a good teacher. Either he's crazy or he is deceptive and pulling one over on everyone or he's actually who he says he is. So that's a good place to start. That's just how we should think in presenting Christ to people is that they don't have many options here. You can't just be a good guru or a good teacher or a good prophet or a good ethicist or a good life coach. All right, I want to start with this. Why even do we need Christ? What is the point of the Messiah coming to earth? And we got to deal with the title, which I know if you've been through some of the other compass nights, you've been through this chart or some variation of it before, but it is helpful and you should understand what's there. Okay, I got the Greek word and the Hebrew word here, and I just want to have you fill in this quick chart, okay? Uh, Let's look across the top. We've got Christos here, transliterated, and that's all it is. It's not translated. It's just moved over and pronounced in English. Christos is pronounced Christ and transliterated and anglicized into English as the word Christ. So Christos is the word we see throughout the New Testament. Creo, the verb, and we'll look at the meaning in a second, but that is where we get the word Christ from. And what it translates, and what it is, 
is, is a translation of in Greek is of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach is transliterated Messiah. So we've got Christos, Mashiach. We actually do have a translation there because they're not the same. Like Satan and Satan, those words are transliterated from Hebrew to Greek. But in this case, we have two different words, but they mean the exact same thing. From Creo and Mashah, the, 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 those are the verbs, here are the nouns. So we've got the word Christ and Messiah. Those are the two words. And you're not going to find, by the way, in... Well, we'll look at that in a minute. You're going to find the word Christ all over the New Testament as it's translated into English. You don't find the word Messiah in the Old Testament uh, translated, transliterated into English. We'll translate it here in a second. Because if we want to translate it, here's how it's translated. Sometimes it is translated this way in the New Testament, but it's usually translated in the Old Testament this way. The, the anointed, the anointed one, if you want to put it clearly in a sentence that doesn't have any combinational noun next to it, we have the word anointed. Sometimes it's the anointed one or the anointed ones. So Christos, Mashiach, if you translate those, you can translate it anointed. Well, that doesn't help because we need the word anointed translated. That may be an English word, but we don't use it very much. Some people use it in all kinds of ways. I'm not sure they understand what they're saying. I pray this would be an anointed sermon. Sometimes people pray, praying for your anointed sermon. I'm not sure if they know what that means. Matter of fact, I'm 99% sure they don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. If you want some synonyms, as we define this word, you can get the word in English, pour, to smear, to sprinkle, or to rub. That's what the word means. To anoint is to pour, to smear, to sprinkle, and rub. And that's, I'm not sure what people mean when they use the word, I want your sermon to be anointed. I mean, I do know what they mean because I've been around church long enough, but I'm not sure what they're wanting to pour, smear, or sprinkle, or rub on my sermon. They're going to say the Holy Spirit. I understand that, but that's an interesting way to put it. This is used in the Bible in all kinds of ways. When someone wants to put uh, lotion on their face, for instance, in the New Testament, Matthew 6, it says when you're fasting, you should wash your face and put your moisturizer on and go out there and don't act like you're all gloomy and, and you're you're fasting. You don't want to do your acts of righteousness to be seen by people. That's not the point. And the word there to put the oil on your face, that's the word in a very common sense, a common usage of the word, used nine times in a common usage as a verb. To put perfume on the body, Luke seven thirty eight. To prepare a body for burial, Mark 16, you would anoint the body with spices so it wouldn't smell bad. To put salve or ointment on a person that was sick, James 5. In the Old Testament, the word is used for putting oil on shields. Usually they had those leather covers, or even if they were metal, to put oil on the shield. To paint a house, Jeremiah 22. To apply lotions to the body, Amos chapter 6, verse 5. And then there was all kinds of anointing of objects in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, you would anoint some of the offerings, but you would pour something on it. Usually you knew what the means was, the medium that you're using to anoint things with. So, all right. There was a very special oil, by the way, when we start talking about a sacred use of the anointing oil that was put together by a perfumer back in Moses' day that was to be only used for the purpose of ceremonial ritual, which is where we're going to go here next. There's an office, there's an anointing, and there's a title that's given to these in three ways. And these are the things we want to look at as we start to think about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. We start thinking in these categories because all three of these categories of offices in the Old Testament had something to do with anointing. They were set apart. They were authorized. They were 
recognized by the masses because they were in a ceremony, they were anointed. The prophets, usually by the school of the prophets, with others, as First Kings chapter 19, verse 16 says, you would have, for instance, Elisha, if he was setting apart another prophet, he would anoint them into the office of the prophet by a ceremony with oil. And then sometimes they were called, the prophets were called the anointed ones. Psalm 105, 14 and 15. You're not supposed to oppress the prophets. You're not supposed to do bad to the prophets. God threatens them. Do not touch my anointed ones, my prophets, and do them no harm. The concept there is God's going to take personally the response of the Old Testament saint who doesn't treat the Old Testament prophet well. And he calls them there, the synonym for the prophet is the anointed one. If you were to update that into your New Testament Greek, you would say the Christ. The prophet is the Christ. If you say in the Old Testament, you'd say the prophet is the Messiah. Prophets are rightly called Messiah or the anointed one as it's translated for us in Psalm 105. The priests, of course, were anointed in a very ritual ceremony. It started with Aaron being anointed. Moses anointed the first priest, Aaron, and his sons and consecrated them and set them apart as priests. That's what Exodus chapter 30, verse 30 says. Set them apart, consecrate them. That's what the word means. Set them apart as a special group of people that can enter into this sanctuary, which was a tabernacle at that point, where you could come in and have them represent the people before me. So set them apart and only they can do these certain things that are laid out in the law. They're called in Numbers chapter 3, verse 3, the anointed ones. They are called the Christs. They're called the Messiahs. The Messiahs are the ones that were ordained to serve as priests. Number 3, 3. Again, we don't translate it that way, Messiah or Christ, because we've come to recognize that special word as it relates to Jesus of Nazareth, but that is what the word is. Then, of course, the king, through a very elaborate royal ceremony, they were anointed as king. We remember very famously 1 Samuel chapter 16 when Samuel goes out to Jesse's house, works all through those brothers and finally pulls out his flask of oil and pours it on the head of young David, the shepherd boy, and says, you are the king. 1 Samuel 16, 13. He took the horn of oil and he anointed him. Then he was called the anointed one. 2 Samuel 23, it talked about David as the anointed one of God, the anointed one of of the God of Jacob, speaking of David. So you want to translate that in Greek, you would say that David was the Christ of God, the God of Jacob, or the Messiah of God, the God of Jacob. But we would never say the, we would say a in an indefinite article because we say, well, we know that when we open up our Bibles, we're chugging toward the fulfillment of God's plan, and it's all about bringing a Messiah, a Christ, and fulfilling all three of these Role. So let's think through how the Bible talks about that. Letter B, the perfect prophet. We need a prophet who's going to be perfect. We can't even get Moses out of the desert into the promised land because he can't obey God. He begs with God in Deuteronomy 3, let me into the promised land. And God says, no, because you didn't revere me as holy. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, even after that whole fiasco, it speaks, God speaks and says this regarding Moses. Well, these nations which you're about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and diviners. Why would you do that? Why would you ever stop, which you better not, at the spectrum and get your fortune read? Why would, why would you? Because well, I want to know. I want to know something beyond the mortal, temporal, earthly knowledge. I need, I need to know what God's doing beyond 
the veil, that he's going to do for me. What's my future? What's my fortune? Well, the nations out there in Canaan were doing those kinds of things, but you're not supposed to do that. As for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Now let's keep going in this passage. God's saying, okay, a lot of people looking for uh, information from God, they want a prophet. Well, there's going to be a prophet. Keep reading. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, that's when they were there at Mount Sinai and there was all this lightning and thunder. And you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord Yahweh said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, he says to Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them in all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He'll have all the authority of heaven and he will speak to the people from heaven Just like I raised you up, there's going to be a more perfect prophet that's going to come and he's going to speak clearly. And guess what? When I say, don't strike the rock, but speak to it, he will do all that I tell him and require him to do. I will hold anyone accountable who doesn't obey that prophet. Okay. And the people of Israel wept for Moses when he died. Now note this, the end of Moses' life. In the plains of Moab, 30 days. God did not let him go into the promised land. He dies in the wilderness. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hand on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants and to all of his land for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So here we are, the ending of the Pentateuch saying Joshua was next in line, but he was not the ultimate prophet. Matter of fact, you want to compare Joshua to Moses. Moses was greater. He had all these works associated with him. He had all these miracles associated with him. He spoke for God because he had access to God like a face-to-face prophet. Well, God had said there's someone coming who's even better than Moses, and it certainly isn't Joshua. Joshua was not the one to fulfill that prophecy and to fill the boots of Moses. Matter of fact, someone is going to do that who comes after Moses that's better than Moses himself. Matter of fact, we'll know more about his relationship to God that is even better than this phrase that he knew God face to face. So there's a prophet that's coming. The Old Testament set that expectation who is greater than Moses, who's a prophet that's going to speak with all the authority of heaven. And it certainly wasn't Joshua. If you think back to our miracle chart, by the way, by the time you get to Jesus, the miracles that Jesus did far out way and supersede anything that Moses did. Bible also set up an expectation for a perfect priest. Priest, of course, is one who goes, as I said, of of Aaron and his sons to stand in the place that represents God's holiness and the perfection of God's heaven, which is a representation of that in the tabernacle. And that is supposed to be the person that goes and pleads my case before God. And those are special people. They have special consecration. They're set apart to do that work. And I'm supposed to recognize them as my representative. Well, there's a perfect priest that was always expected in the Old Testament, better than Aaron and certainly than his sons who couldn't make it through priest school, if you know the story. Psalm 110, one through four. The Lord said to my Lord, and since we've been through this, I think in this semester, haven't we? You know the difference between those two. When you have it all in caps, or actually in your 
Bibles, you have it in small cap, but it's still a cap, O, small cap, R, small cap, D, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, Adonai is the word for Lord, but it's not Adonai when it's capital. It's the word Yahweh, the proper name of God, used over 7,000 times in the Old Testament. So Yahweh says to my Lord, which Jesus loved to point this passage out, and so did the apostles, and we'll see that in Acts 2 as we get to that soon in our study, which we start this week in Acts chapter 2. The preaching about Jesus being the Lord of this passage, how can it be that David in Psalm 110 speaks of Yahweh, the ultimate Lord, saying to his Lord, that's still above David in rank, and David was supposed to be the greatest, and yet Jesus, how can the Messiah be the son of David? That seems to be inferior when David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, something that Jesus said he came to fulfill. And what is that? To sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Everyone's going to be subject to you. It sounds a lot like his kingship. We'll get into that. But right now I'm looking at this phrase. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's a king. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. You're not only a king. Look at this passage. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this strange passage that was written around the 10th century BC, so a thousand years before Christ, we have this statement about this figure that we only find one time in the Old Testament, which is about 2000 BC in Abraham's day, who was a priest and a king overseeing a place that ended up being the Jebusite city eventually that David overthrew that became the capital of David's kingdom. It was the place of Jerusalem. And here reigned a king that was not only a king telling people what to do with a scepter in his hand, but he was also a priest that they would come to to have access to God. And that was really strange because as God lays out in the book of Genesis, if you're going to have a king, he promised my kingly line would be through Judah. But if you're going to have priests... I'm going to take the priest from Aaron's family, and he, like Moses, is from the tribe of Levi. And so from then on, you have what's called the Levitical priesthood. But now all of a sudden, a thousand years after Melchizedek, this strange priest king that superseded the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood by 600 years, he was apparently a priest of the Most High God in a legitimate fashion. And the Bible now says there's one coming. The Lord says to my Lord, David says, someone superior to me. And he already knew that from him would come the great king that would sit on his throne and his kingdom would last forever. So David's going to have a son that's going to be king forever. And now we learn that as he says about this great king, it's actually his Lord above him, outranks him. And he's not only a king with a scepter, but he's a priest, which was mind-blowing for every Jewish person. How could you have a priest that's legitimate before God that's not from the tribe of Levi? Well, I guess you have to precede Levi and start thinking about a priesthood that was not about a lineage from Abraham, but something that preceded Abraham. Actually, he was a contemporary of Abraham, and his name was Melchizedek, Melek. And Sedek, those are two Hebrew words. Melech is a Hebrew word for king. Sedek is a Hebrew word for righteousness. He's called the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of this place that ends up being called Jerusalem. And this strange figure sits to us in scripture and everyone sat there and wrestled with it. What does this mean? I guess there's another priesthood out there. Contra the Mormons, it has nothing to do with Joseph Smith. 
Here's the Old Testament passage you might remember. In Melchizedek, Genesis 14, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine, which is really interesting. That's a strange combination. I know they're staples in the ancient world, but it's here in, and again, this is 1445 B.C. when this is being written. He was priest of the Most High, so he's a legitimate priest of the real God of heaven. And he blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram, before his name changed, by the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blessed, and, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies from your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So he ends up giving him a tenth of the spoils of war, which is called a tithe. That's what tenth means. And he gives him this in subjection to a priest that is legitimate in the pages of Scripture. And yet it was 600 years before Moses comes along, has a brother named Aaron, and by God's direction makes him the beginning of the legitimate priesthood in Israel. So there's a priesthood that sits outside of Israel that's legitimate, which might make sense if we learn in Genesis 12 that God has a plan to bless not only the people of Israel, but the whole earth. Families of every nation would be blessed because, well, we need a priesthood for the nations. How do we have a priesthood for the nations? The only priesthood we know about is the priesthood of Levi. Well, no, that's not true. We got that weird passage in Genesis 14. There is another priesthood. Oh, and we have a predictive prophecy from David a thousand years after that that says there will be another priesthood, and that would be the priest we really need, the priest for the whole world, if ever the gospel is going to go to the whole world, and God's going to work to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Well, that's what Hebrews picks up on to make this case. Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Now, here's a book named Hebrews where the Jews were clearly expressing their expectation and they saw it, of course, as fulfilled in Christ, but they said, we knew there would be another priest that would be of a different order, not the order of Levi, but the order of Melchizedek rather than the one after the order of Aaron, Levi. That was the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the tribe of Levi. His sons were obviously from the tribe of Levi. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a necessary change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one had ever served at the altar, at least not the altar of Israel, the altar of Salem, the altar of Jerusalem before Israel took it over. For it is evident that the Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement of bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now they're claiming that's the prophecy regarding Christ. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. The hope for the whole world, not just for Israel. The hope for every tongue, tribe, and nation. The hope of a perfect priest that also can be embodied in the perfect king. And that leads us to our third point, which is letter D, our fourth point under the need for the Messiah, a perfect king. I've got to have representation before God. I need to hear clearly what God says. He's an invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light. How do I know about God? I need God to give me direction. I need a prophet. I need God to accept me. I need some kind of priesthood, a mediator. Well, I've got it in Christ. At least the Old Testament said we need that. The ultimate Christ, the ultimate Messiah, just like the kings were anointed, I need an anointed king. I need a perfect king. And the Old Testament constantly looked forward to that. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is not about... The historic figure in Isaiah that was a child, it's about a child in the future. I know it by the way it describes him. For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Here's some names that never applied to anyone in the Old Testament. Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You could find God the Father described in some of those. But what we need is that Prince of Peace, the Prince of the King, who comes and dwells on the earth, administering his kingdom. And that's exactly what's promised in the Old Testament prophecy regarding the need for a perfect king. The increase of his government, how far, the extent of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He is the king's prince, and he's the prince over all of the people, leading them to peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts of the armies will do this. So God is going to bring a perfect king. I know we quote this at Christmas time, but how important for us to think about what the Bible sets up as the need for mankind to have a perfect prophet who gives us clarity from God, a perfect priest that gives us perfect representation before God, and a perfect king that rules over all the people of God perfectly. Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Name one king after Zedekiah. Jeremiah is there watching the destruction of Judah from the line of David. And here is the promise. Hey, there's a day coming when there will be from David a righteous branch, which again, Isaiah spoke of that as well. A branch, a shoot will rise up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, David's family, looks like it's been cut down and Zedekiah's eyes have been gouged out. And I guess our hope is over. Well, out of that stump, Isaiah said, there's going to come a branch and that branch is going to be the king. And he's going to execute justice and righteousness and be the king over all of it. Isaiah made it very clear. The increase of his government, the extent of his government, see no end. It'll be eternal. It'll be forever. And it'll be broad. And it will include the whole earth. They look forward to that. Hard for you. Even if you memorize the 20 kings of the south, it's hard for you to think of who reigned afterwards. Why? Because after the 70-year captivity, we muddled along through the intertestamental period. And we kept waiting for the king. Well, the king was anointed. He's called the Messiah. He's called the Christ. The priest was anointed. He's called the Messiah. He's called the Christ in Greek. The prophet was anointed. He was called the Messiah. He's called the Christ in Greek in the New Testament. Well, all of that is converging in a great expectation, a messianic hope. How about this one? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We're talking about regal kingship, about a scepter. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, Daniel sees during the Babylonian exile. We're here in the 6th century BC. There came like one like this, like a son of man, look like a human being. Now, God, of course, dwells in unapproachable light. He's the invisible God who fills heaven. Well, here's someone that looks like he's got fingernails and elbows and shoulders. And he came to the ancient of days, which apparently this one would come from the ancient of days, Micah 5, 2, born in Bethlehem. His goings forth were from long ago, from ancient days. So here's this eternal one that comes and he comes to the one, the eternal one, the father, And he was presented before him, and to him was given, the whole book of Daniel was all about this, dominion, glory, a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? The kind of kingdom that Isaiah talked about. The increase and the extent of it will be all over the world, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Everyone subjected to this one king, and his dominion, everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You got the statue, all these different kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But then you got a big rock that comes and smashes them all. And it is a kingdom that fills the whole earth, the Bible says. And there is the picture. We need a king. At least that's the expectation painted for us in the Bible. 
And he's called here one like a son of man. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God. And when you see capitalized with God, tell me what you've got there. You've got, again, Adonai and Yahweh put together here. The Lord, Yahweh, comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. So I've got a God himself coming, but it's his arm that comes. It's this picture of some manifestation of God. Pardon me here for that modalistic expression of it, but that's the picture. I'm speaking now in human terms. He comes here and he rules for God. Behold, his reward is with him. He's going to reward his people and his recompense is before him. He's going to pay back people. And then he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. We know this because Handel put this into the Handel's Messiah. We sing it at Christmas. We hear it at Christmas. But the picture here is of a coming king who treats the enemies harshly and brings recompense. He strongly rules with an iron scepter. And he also deals gently with his people his penitent ones, and leads them as a good shepherd. All right, so that's the expectation. Now, we could spend time, and we have, I think, in the past, and I gave you a series of books, some that just came out about Messianic prophecy that are, I think, very helpful and important. The one I'm excited about, it's 1,500 pages. I wrote an endorsement for it. It just came out last week called the Moody's Messianic, what did I call it last week? You write it down? The Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. I was, right? Someone look it up on Amazon. Moody Handbook of Messianic prophecy, that's what it's, is, that, is that what it's called? Yes. Is that what I'm, I'm hearing? An affirmative. Okay. If you look, yes. Great. That's worth getting. I think it's going to come out electronically, but it's not out already. I have got the hardback this week from the publisher in the mail, but a excellent resource. As I wrote in my endorsement of the book that's on the inside fly of it, in a day like ours, the trifold Christmas Christ is the Messiah pamphlet probably won't cut it. This is a great book that will help along with many others. Well, I'm not here to be extensive about Messianic prophecy in this particular lecture. I'm just here to make some simple observations about those three about those three offices. So and we could talk about all the promises of the Davidic line of Bethlehem, triumphal entry, 70 weeks prophecy, all of that. But I'm not here to talk about that. I want to talk about the simplicity of these three offices. If we're saying there is an expectation in the Old Testament of a Messiah, then I want to see how the New Testament unfolds that fulfillment in Christ. And here's how it puts it. Things like this. Luke chapter 9, verses 34 through 35. When I think about the great prophet, I need someone better than Moses coming to speak for us and telling us God's thoughts. That's what I need. And Luke 9, 34 and 35 says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. This is Jesus we're talking about. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is him. This is the Christ. He is the prophet. This is my chosen one. This is the one who represents me perfectly which is the idea of son. Just like you'd say Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He was the embodiment of everything that encouragement was. He's a human walking encouragement. That's the picture of calling someone the son of encouragement. And so he is the son of God and God's son perfectly reflecting him as it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3, the exact representation of the nature of God. As Colossians says, he's the, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Christ is presented that way in this miraculous scene when a cloud overshadows him and the voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. As I put already in Hebrews 1, 1, I'll just repeat it long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, here's the concluding final, God has spoken in with finality this way. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So this 
all authoritative spokesperson of God is the fulfillment of all the expectation of the Old Testament. And Christ is him. Christ is he, I guess, to be grammatically correct. John 1.1, 1, 1, which again gets a little philosophical in our minds because we're not thinking in terms of the Greek philosophical expression. And though I don't want to go too far down that road in reading things into John that aren't there, but to speak about the, the logos, the logos of God, the word the expression of God, that God expresses himself. That expression of God is the name given to Jesus in John chapter 1. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14. And the Word, this Word, this expression of God, I was trying to talk about the great prophet. He's the great prophet. He's God's ultimate fulfillment of the expectation of the great prophet of God, that we need the spokesperson of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a great, great verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation of this expression of God, the ultimate prophet. Priest, John 14, 6 and 7. John 14, 6 and 7. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, here's a priestly phrase, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're in the Old Testament, you're Hezekiah, you want to burn some incense, you can't. No one comes to God except through the priest. You've got to have access through the priesthood. If you're Saul and you want to sacrifice some, some animals so before you go into warfare, you better wait for the priest to show up. The priest has got to do it. You can't do it. God will punish those who don't recognize the priesthood. This is a statement of his priesthood. I am the way is a statement of his priesthood. I am the truth, a statement of his prophetic role. I am the life, certainly as the shepherd and the king. I think you can see all three here. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Just like you could say, at least in some distant way, if you knew Moses, you knew God, at least in the sense that he was a great representation, bringing you some information from God as the prophet. And as he was asked by his brother, asked that his brother would become this priest as God set it up, you would have to come through Aaron and his sons to be able to have access to God. Jesus fulfills all that. From now on, You do know him and have seen him because Christ is the great priest. Hebrews 2.16 explains him that way. It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he's going to save us. He's going to represent us to God. He has to come and represent us as a representative. That means he partakes in who we are. To become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make a payment, a propitiation, a satisfaction for sins of the people. So... Jesus has to be made one of us. I guess that's probably the most significant and weighty verse I've read so far that deals with why is there a Messiah? Well, there's a Messiah primarily, not just so I can have clear information. I guess we could have worked through a bunch of human prophets. But one thing I can't do is have a priesthood that rightly represents me with a payment for my human transgressions. I need a human representative that can bring me human righteousness imputed to me to represent me before my creator. So I've got to have a Messiah that's perfect. And so God sends his son to be that perfect representation and makes the payment for sin. He's made as we are in every way, except for sin. He bears our sin. Hebrews six seventeen. When God desired to show more convincingly that the heirs of the promise, that's us. He wanted to show us that we could be assured the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, that's two things right there. He's got a promise and an oath, but he's going to put on top of it another thing. And that is it's impossible for God to lie. There's his character. We who fled for refuge might have strong, I'm, keep, I'm still reading, encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now here's a picture filled with, with poetic symbols, but here it is. Look at it. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I can be sure that I'm good with God. 
A hope that enters into where God is, to the inner place behind the curtain. You couldn't go behind the curtain unless you were the high priest on Wednesday, last Wednesday, right? This last Wednesday was Yom Kippur. That was yesterday. It seems like a week ago. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, a day the high priest would go in once a year with the blood of goats being shed. And one of them, you'd lay your hands on him. Azazel, the goat that would go out as the scapegoat into the wilderness. I need sin out of the way. I need sin paid for. Now the great high priest can go into the presence of God once a year on the day of atonement. That's the picture. And now Christ himself goes. He enters in behind the curtain. Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf because that's where we want to be, in the presence of God. That where he is, we can be also as we go to this place, this dwelling place of God having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the picture. He has the right to do this even before, even though he's not of the tribe of Levi because God has made him like us, superseding the priesthood of Aaron, going back to Melchizedek, and he becomes the one who represents us perfectly behind all the barriers that exist because of our sin. One more, Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, then we ought to hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every way, in every respect, like us, tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. The time of need is when we see our sin and we need that forgiveness and we recognize that we've got a great high priest a priest that's better than all the priests of the Old Testament, most of which we find to be so frail and human, as the book of Hebrews points out, that they could never rightly represent us before God, just like the kings. This is so odd in ancient Near Eastern language to have the kings showed, show their flaws. Well, that's the picture. We have a flawed David who is the best of the best, and yet we know all kinds of sins in David's life, counting the troops, Bathsheba, etc. We need perfect representation not just as a prophet, but as a priest and as a king. And that's where we end in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. The promise came to Mary that she would be conceive in her womb and bear a son, and you're going to call his name Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, Savior. Yahweh saves is what the word means. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Does that sound like Isaiah chapter 9? It does, because that's the reflection of that truth. The extent of his government, there's going to be no end. When did that happen? It hasn't happened. He earned the right to have it happen at his first coming. He will inaugurate that at his second coming. It'll be the great coronation of the king. Luke twenty two sixty seven. they asked him on his trial, are you the Christ, or before his trial rather, the Sanhedrin, are you the Christ? And he said, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, in other words, you've rejected all the negotiation about the truth. You won't reason together with me about this. So the next thing you're going to see in God's prophetic timetable, as you think through your meeting of the Christ, you're going to see the son of man. That's what he loved to call himself. It's the number one self-attached title of Christ in the New Testament. Daniel 7, he shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the anointed one. In this case, I'm the king. I'm going to be seated there as human representation, not only as a great priest within the veil in the presence of God, but I'm going to reign next to, to God the Father with the power of God. Revelation 11:15. I quote it all the time because I can't wait for this to happen. I hope you can't wait either as you pray every day for his kingdom to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. The seventh trumpet here was the finality of the plan, at least in that poetic expression, the trumpets being blown. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Speaking of God, the father and of his Christ, his Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah of God. And he shall reign. That's what kings do reign forever 
endeavor. The fulfillment of Messianic prophecy and prophet, priest, and king is all I'm trying to do there in that third section. We can look at all the details. You can look at Michael Brown's five-volume Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Charles Brown's Divine Glory of Christ, Walt Kaiser's Messiah in the Old Testament, Will Varner's Messiah Revealed, Rejected, and Received. A lot of books I've given you on focalpointministries.org. You can find all those books there. But categorically, I want to think through those three things. Number four, we're going to have to deal with people saying, well, I don't know. I kind of like just think he's a good moral teacher. Well, he didn't leave that open to us for these reasons. One reason is just the title that he gave and called himself. Now, this is hard because we're dealing with a different language, but Jesus loved to be referred to as the Lord, as the Lord. I mean, that was a common title for Jesus. Now, you can say it was a common title for other people too. Well, it was. The Lord Jesus Christ, though, you're starting to talk about phrases you're not going to apply to other people. Talk about blasphemy, just talk about that combination of words. Lord and Christ. If you're the Christ, really, then you're the Messiah. And if you're the Lord Christ, I mean, that, that's a kind of extreme claim. The fulfillment of the Old Testament. And if you carefully understand Old Testament prophecy, though modern Jews will reject this. Look carefully at the Old Testament prophecies. You'll see the demand of the Messiah to be God himself. God comes. He brings retribution. He brings recompense. He rules over the people. He's the shepherd of the people. Jesus, though, second person of the triune God, reigns in that place. I am Yahweh and Lord, capital O-R-D. The reason I put it that way is because you need to see the connection between all three of these. I've done this before. I think in our Christology series, you can look that lecture up in dealing with the name of God. But in John chapter 8, I'll show you the quick connection here if you don't know it offhand. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, which is very odd for him to talk about what Abraham thinks and what he says, you know, or what he would rejoice in. Actually, it's stated as a statement. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. How do you know that? The Jews said, well, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Obviously, they're mocking him here. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus doesn't stutter. Whenever he says that, he's making a very firm, clear, look at this statement and ponder it. Before Abraham was, I am. The word Yahweh, the proper name of God revealed throughout the Old Testament 7,000 times, has to do with that verb in Hebrew that relates to being ongoing, self-sustaining being, just like the phrase here in Greek, ego, ami, ego, ami, I am, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, was a weird way to say it, but it's certainly referring to the word that we would translate in our English Bible's Lord with a capital R-D, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which deals with the concept of a self-existing verb to be, I am. Jesus is saying a mouthful here and they got it. They understood it. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We'll look at more of this at the very end of our lecture, but the idea of them knowing exactly what he meant when he said those kinds of things, that he was claiming the divine title. We could go on and on because it's ubiquitous in the New Testament how often he uses this word, but Lord, like authority, like ultimate one, not talking about a Lord and a master, not talking about some boss at work. He's looking at the masses and saying things like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This is a kind of expression of his understanding of the meaning of the concept of what it means to be Lord, to be in charge, to be as God is expressed in the Old Testament, the Lord. That, by the way, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that's the word you see, kurios, Lord. It's translated Lord in the New Testament, kurios, kurios. You don't do what I tell you. Translates the word Yahweh into Greek, kurios, which translates into English Lord. We could talk a lot more about the word Lord, and I've done it in other lectures, but let's look at this phrase. 
which is interesting, and I, it's just a good one. And we could go on with several titles, but I just, I just think I'd pick three here. I didn't put the sub numbers on your outline, but I think there's only three that I chose to talk about. Isaiah 44, 6 and 7. This concept of the first and the last, which is a huge way to talk about, I was there at the beginning, I'm there at the end, I supersede, I continue on. It's much like the statement, you're not even 50 and you've seen Abraham, how could you know anything about that? I mean, no one claims pre-existence, unless you're Shirley MacLaine, I guess, but the idea of having that knowledge and biblical contexts of I am, I was somewhere conscious and aware before the incarnation, before I was born. Isaiah 44, speaking of Yahweh here, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there's no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it, let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Well, how could anyone do that? Well, only one who is, who is first and last, Alpha Omega, beginning and end, the one who sees it all, the end from the beginning, and can prophesy it all, the end from the beginning. And God, as I said, couple weeks ago regarding predictive prophecy two weeks ago the idea of god challenging the gods of the nations tell the future then give me predictive prophecy because no one can do that but the first and the last isaiah 48 11, for my own sake and for my own sake he says i do it for how should my name be profaned my glory i will not give it to another listen to me O jacob and israel whom i called i am he i am the first i am the last that's a strong statement about exclusivity the glory of god just as it says of Christ all the time, the glory, right? We've seen his glory, beheld his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he's called here the first and last. And that is a phrase God loves to describe himself in the Old Testament. Revelation 1.17, in brackets here, just to give you the context, I, John, saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet, dead, as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. To say that is a huge statement. I mean, it's a divine statement, much like saying before Abraham was, I am. You're claiming a title that belongs to the eternal Yahweh God. Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Clearly Christ in the context here. It's in red letters in your Bible because it's clearly in context speaking of Christ coming back a second time. Behold, I'm coming soon. My recompense, my payment, my retribution is with me to repay to each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I want to demonstrate to someone that Jesus wasn't claiming to be just a good teacher, a guru, a moral law, a moral coach, an ethics teacher. He claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. How about the phrase son of man? Daniel 7. There came one like the son of man. I've already quoted this. He came in the ancient days, presented himself, has given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The son of man, the son of man. It's Jesus' favorite title. And when he starts throwing it around and applying it to himself, he's not just trying to say, hey, my dad is a man. That's not the point. Matter of fact, that was the whole point of the virgin birth. His dad was not a human man. Matthew 26, 64 and 65, Jesus said, you've said so. He was being here drilled by Pilate. But I tell you from now, I think it was Pilate in Matthew 26, 46. You can look that up and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe in the Sanhedrin. But now you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes. This was the Sanhedrin. And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Now we've heard his blasphemy. If you stood up in the first century and said, I'm the son of man seated 
at the right hand of power, you're going to see me one day coming on the clouds of heaven. Everyone's going to think Daniel chapter 7, and everyone's going to say, if you are claiming you're him to whom all people should submit to, then you are blaspheming. What is blaspheming? You're claiming to be, you're taking something sacred and making it common. You are taking God and claiming that you're him. It's blasphemy. By the way, I should say this as a quick sidebar. People that say to you, why didn't Jesus just come out and say he's God? You've heard that before? Smile at me if you've heard people say that, right? Why didn't you just say that? Because Jesus had to be clear about which God he was. Everyone had gods. Everyone claimed to be gods. There were all kinds of gods that claimed to be human. Caesar himself claimed himself to be God. Herod exalted himself as God to say, I'm God. I mean, which God? What God? That is very important to recognize. Jesus, throughout his teachings is making very clear, I'm this God. I'm the God of Scripture, the God of the Old Testament. When there were Roman emperors trying to get you to say that they were God, to be deified, which of course that's what they thought about themselves. Back to Herod the Great, it was nonsensical. At least I shouldn't say it. It's, it was too broad to come out and just say, well, I'm God. This is far clearer. And these kinds of statements couldn't be more clear. I'm the God of Daniel 7 with all authority and power. Matthew 25, 31 and 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations. He'll separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, that seems like a lot of power and authority the Son of Man wields coming in his glory, which is the picture of Daniel 7. How about this one just to soften the picture here, although nothing soft about the great shepherd of the Old Testament. But certainly you know the phrase, Yahweh is my shepherd. There's so many other passages of scripture we could look at God representing himself as the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of the people. Did he have under shepherds? Sure. There were teachers and pastors, if you will. That's what a shepherd is. Of these Old Testament teachers in the synagogues, in the intertestamental period, they were the shepherds of Israel. But God was the shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. Psalm 80 verse 1, hear, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. The God of the Old Testament was the shepherd, the shepherd of the people. Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew 10, 11, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. Lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, four verses later. I know my own and my own know me. Luke 18, 9, I think one of the reasons I want to point out the importance of that phrase, just not another under shepherd here. Jesus had made clear before when people called him good, do you know what you're saying? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You start using that as an adjective, you need to make sure you know what you're talking about if you're going to call me the good rabbi. Well, he knew what he was talking about when he called himself the good shepherd. No one's good but God alone. He uses that in an absolute sense regarding himself. I have people and my people hear my voice. They follow me. I even have sheep of another fold. I got people beyond Israel. I am that son of man who all people and all nations will submit to. And the dominion of all of the planet and every people group belongs to him. That's not just a good teacher who would humbly, self-effacingly look away if you tried to give him a trophy, which is how some people think God is. Thinking of that, let's talk about divine worship. John 5, 22 and 23. This to me is a slam dunk passage. And again, you either have to attack the source that the Bible isn't really what was written. In other words, what you have is not an accurate reflection of what was written, or it's just man's best thoughts about God. It's some perverted thought of human beings making God into be someone he's not. It's Constantine's, I don't know, conspiracy to create a God figure in Christ when he really wasn't that. But if we can get past the truthfulness of the scripture, the veracity and transmission of the text, which we spent two weeks doing, then you've got to deal with statements like this that came out of Jesus's mouth that were accurately recorded, that that all may honor or should honor the son as they honor the father. And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. 
to use the word kathos, just as in Greek, to say that the way you honor the son ought to be the way you honor the father is a crazy statement for guys just claiming to be a good teacher. His life started that way. Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east who came to Jerusalem, they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to, to worship him. I mean, that's just a crazy thought, certainly in the mind of a Jewish person. Now, you could say, well, Jesus was just a kid here in this passage. and He was under two years old. Well, he couldn't stop him. Well, that's true, but it's certainly presented in this passage by Matthew, who's very concerned about Jewish law of the Old Testament, seeming to be a very natural, normal, and expected thing. If he was the son of man from Daniel 7, it makes perfect sense that the, the wise men, the magi from Mesopotamia would come and worship him, worship him, worship a person. Why is that such a big deal? Because Exodus thirty four fourteen, not to mention Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the First Commandment, the Second Commandment, you're not supposed to worship anyone but God, but it said more strongly than ever right here, you sh- for you shall worship no other God. For Yahweh, God, the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. He doesn't let you worship anyone else. He's rightly jealous in an appropriate jealousy for everyone's devotion and honor because he deserves it and it's right and you should honor him as he is, which is God. And you don't worship any other. And he says throughout Isaiah, we've quoted several verses tonight from Isaiah, he says there's no other God. I'm the only God. Acts 14, 14 and 15, when human beings are worshiped, even if they're important people like the apostle Paul, they certainly don't accept it. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes. They rushed out in the crowd, rushed out into the crowd, crying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of a nature like yours. We bring you news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. What were they trying to do? They were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. I, John, was the one who'd heard these things, heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So here's an angel that's brokering all this multimedia information to John about the future. And when he kneels down, falls down to worship him, he said, hey, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, of the, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the word of this book worship God. Why? Because that's what everyone recognizes. You only worship God. You don't worship the prophets, you don't worship the apostles, you don't worship angels, you worship God. And yet, throughout the Gospels, he's receiving worship, which would be the most blasphemous thing to do if he weren't God. Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came, took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, don't do that, I'm just a fellow servant of God. No. He said, yeah, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The resurrected Christ receives worship. You don't do that. If you understand the Old Testament laws regarding the exclusivity of the worship of Christ. Hebrews 1, 6, again, when he brings forth, God does the prototokos. That's a great Greek word. The, the first and foremost. Doesn't mean the first in time, but the first in rank. He brings the prototokos into the world, the firstborn into the world. He says, what does God say? Let all the angels, let all God's angels worship him. The angelic class, the host of heaven is supposed to worship Christ. And God, the Father, commends it. He not only commends it, he commands it. Revelation 5, 12 through 14, the lamb, of course, is Christ in this picture. There's no denying that in Revelation 4 and 5. And it says in Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the lamb, verse 12, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Sounds like worship, but it'll get clear if you're not clear on that. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, yes, right on. Yes. Amen. That's what amen means. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is a huge deal. 
the only thing a Muslim, for instance, can say about you pointing out passages about Jesus being worshipped is, oh, I don't trust your Bible. I mean, that's all you can do. I mean, certainly the, 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 the modern Jewish person who rejects Jesus as the Messiah, the, I mean, this is the problem. This is the stumbling block to the Jews, is the Jesus who, in their minds, is blasphemous enough to not only claim to be God, but to receive worship. He creates things out of nothing. He gives life. The Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so the Son gives life to whom he will. Wow. For the Father judges no one, but all judgment is given to the Son, so that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Well, he gives life just like the Father gives life. You ought to honor him just like you honor the Father. Again, blasphemy unless he is the one who can create life out of nothing. Give, gives life to whom he will. And of course he did. John chapter 11 is when I, where I meant to go to Lazarus. Here it is. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been there for four days. Been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, do not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God. That's the whole point of chapter one. We've seen his glory. The word of God, the expression of God, the prophetic expression of God, Christ, the son of God. He became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Well, you're going to see his glory here and speaking things into existence. I mean, biologically, a dead body after four days. I mean, talk about creating things out of nothing. Ex nihilo. It's just out of, out of nothing. And he does. At a molecular level, he took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes, said to the Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me. I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound in living straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. It's an act of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, without Christ, think about this, was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and it was the light of men. There's an active sense, poetically stated, of him giving life to everybody. New baby in your extended family, new baby in the church. He's the giver of life, Christ himself. That's the category of God to do such things. John 2, 7 and 9, 7 through 9. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. He filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some of the water out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water. They knew the glucose, hexose, tannic acid, yeast enzymes, the ethanol, the pH balance, to turn H2O into wine. You couldn't have picked a more complicated thing. You're creating something out of nothing. Man with a withered hand. I like to think through that example. Here's a hand, muscle tissue, atrophied. They're concerned about Winnie's healing. He said, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand. It was restored like the healthy one, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, creating something out of nothing. That's divine creativity. Every creative miracle of Christ was an expression of his divinity because he was showing that he creates just as God does, the Father. Luke 22, verses 49 through 51, those around him saw that saw what would follow. They said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. His name was Malchus. Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. I mean, it seems like a small miracle, but you try it. It's, it's an amazing creative act where tissues and blood vessels and microscopic parts of, his, of the cartilage of his ear restored. God does those, those kinds of things. Divine forgiveness, Luke chapter 5. Man on the bed, paralyzed. They're seeking to bring him to lay him before Christ. Couldn't find a way in, so they take the thatched roof off. They let him down through the bed tiles in the midst before him. They said, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. 
which is the whole point. But the scribes and Pharisees said, well, who is this one that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, I get that. That's true. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or arise and walk? By the way, what's the answer to that question? Which is easier to forgive the sins you've committed for me to say your sins are forgiven or to get you to rise and walk? Sins. I mean, how in the world can anyone forgive someone's sins? Well, I guess the only way you could forgive sins is to be the one that you've sinned against. What a miracle that would be. Not to mention how you're going to do that before a holy God. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me do the easy one then. He says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise up. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up, picked up his bed that he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them. And they all glorified God and were filled with awe. And they said, here's the understatement of the day. We've seen extraordinary things today. And the extraordinary thing that they should have marveled at was that God was forgiving sins. Transgressions are against God alone. Psalm 51, I can't forgive someone for bashing into your car in the parking lot because it's not my car. I can't forgive that person unless, of course, I have the kind of alliance with you that the son had with the father. The two are one. Divine judgment, John 5, verses 22 and 23. The Bible's very clear that God is going to judge. That's what the Old Testament says. And yet it's not the first person of the Godhead that's going to judge. All judgment is given to the Son. They may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's the third time I've quoted the passage, but each time I wanted you to see something unique about it. One is that he's honored equivalent with the Father. In this particular aspect, I want you to see that he has judgment. The judgment that the Bible says in Psalm 98.9 is Yahweh's. That's because Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. Because it's not the Father who will judge, it's the Son that will judge. The triune God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, the person of the Godhead is Jesus. Even the demons saw that. Matthew chapter 8, they knew that he was going to punish them, which didn't know the time. He's going to judge people. Matthew 25, he has divine authority. He said that in the Great Commission, letter F. All authorities in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, he can't be a good moral teacher and say those kinds of things. He's got to be a lunatic, right? He's got to be delusional, or he's got to be a deceiver, lying, purposefully deceiving people, or he's got to be, I guess, what he says, having all authority. He commands the unclean spirits to come out. He commands the seas to be quiet, Matthew chapter 8. Only God can do that. He calms the storms, the Bible says, Psalm 107, Job 38. He's in charge of the seas, and yet Jesus comes and speaks those things. He can command fish to go into a net. He can tell you to go catch a fish. And the one that comes up first, he knows there's money in its mouth. He can direct the fish to swallow a shekel and that fish to swim into a net. And at the right time, put that in the hand of Peter and in the till for his temple tax. That's divine authority. They understood it. They wanted to kill him because he was blaspheming. John 10, 30. They asked him if he was the Christ. They said, yes. The Sanhedrin, the high priest said, great. You're a blasphemer then. That's why he died. They wanted to kill him all the more, not just because he broke the Sabbath, because he was calling God, making God out to be his own father, making himself equal with God. And I'm four minutes late. Let's pray. God, so much here. We move so fast. Sorry about that, God. But I pray that there's enough here for us to work through and digest. Lots of passages to look up this week again, a second time, to think through the extreme claims of Scripture regarding who Christ is. God, help us to take that seriously and to know that no one can be neutral about these claims in Scripture. Either the Bible's not a reliable record of what's said or what's said demands our full attention because it can't be dismissed simply as, well, you know, he's a good teacher. So God, thanks for this time just to think through these elements together, these issues of Scripture together. May it be useful in our conversations with non-Christians real soon, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.